with me, if you will, to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, so you know what's coming next week. Revelation 22. And then we're done with Revelation. Uh, So I think we're somewhere around 36 or 37 sermons that we've been moving through this series uh, Revelation could easily have been twice that many. And I don't, I don't say that hyperbolically. I, I think it's, there's so many places where we could have gone deeper. And yet, there's a, a certain purpose in keeping moving, uh, at least for me, to, to, to not let us get too bogged down to see the big picture. And so my hope is, is as we come to the end, that the big picture is now kind of coming into a little focus a little more clearly for us all that we're seeing with a little greater assurance the hope that is ours in heaven. Look in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, 
the fifth, onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, and the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We're so grateful that you have given us this word. We pray now that you would help us understand it and hear it from you. Would you deepen our faith in you and cause us to love you more because of it? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes when new things come along, they are welcomed as wonderful additions in our lives. They are embraced as incredible improvements on the way things had been up to that point. Think back to New Coke. Crystal Pepsi, remember that? What about Windows Vista? What an improvement that was. How about Windows ME? You remember that one? The Edsel, the DeLorean, LaserDiscs, Betamax. Okay, all of those things were flops. Sometimes new isn't always good, nor is it all well received. However, something new is coming that is good. And in Revelation 21, John sees a new heaven and earth And here's the voice of God say to him, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, what is described here is hard to understand. I don't see anybody disagreeing with me, so I will will think that you read it the way I do. This is hard to understand. What in the world is John trying to be confusing? What is happening here is John is using earthly human language to describe things that he's seen that none of us have ever seen, that none of us can even imagine. The wording, the language is describing things that are beyond our imagination. He's getting a vision of something incredible. And yet the the vision is also symbolic, as we've seen throughout Revelation, symbols that are pointing to real things. And it's important for us to understand what this is talking about. The purpose of Revelation is to give us hope. The seven churches in Asia Minor were suffering. They were facing persecution. We know from history that the persecution was only going to increase. They needed hope. And you and I need hope as well. We may not have all the details about heaven that we want. I think everyone is curious about what heaven is really like. What are the particulars? But as I've said over and over, we know that whatever heaven is like, it will be better than we can imagine. We will want for nothing, and we will find full satisfaction in our God. 
The first section of chapter 21, you see there's eight verses in the first paragraph. This gives an overview of what John is seeing in this new creation. And then in verses 9 and following to the end of the chapter, really on into 22, but we'll pick that up next week, uh, he elaborates in greater detail of what he kind of outlines in the first eight verses. And so as we look in verse 1, John sees a new heaven and a new earth and describes the old as having passed away. Now, some understand this as the current earth, the current heavens and the earth, current creation, the universe, will be completely annihilated. And this is based partly on the passage in 2 Peter 3.10. And I've read this before, but let me read it again. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But if you've listened or if you've read other things, you know that there's, there's really the, the, the understanding that it's complete annihilation is not where most people, most scholars land. There's actually a, a better understanding of renewal. And so even if we look at this Peter passage, not discounting what he says in these verses, but if we just go up to the verses that precede this, we see that he begins talking about the flood as judgment. And he's, he describes what happened in the flood. And only those who were in the ark were saved. The earth was no doubt affected by the flood. It was changed. The earth looked different after the flood, but the earth was still the same earth. It was simply renewed through the judgment of the flood. And so similarly, we see in other passages the language of transfiguration or renewal in creation rather than annihilation and the recreation of the heavens and the earth. For example, in Isaiah 65... The prophet there is speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. It's kind of in the same flavor that Zach read this morning in Isaiah 60. But here there's some interesting details. I won't read the whole passage, but listen to just three of the verses and the details that are described of the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Verse 25 is maybe the best or the most well-known verse in this passage. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And so there are echoes of our own earth in the new heavens and the new earth. Romans 8 speaks to the creation as awaiting renewal, and it speaks of creation in a kind of a personified sense. Just as we await the resurrection of our bodies, creation is described in the same way. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, for we have the fir- for we- who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so there's this idea of redemption of creation or a renewed heaven and earth. No matter what the details are or what comes about, here's one thing we know for certain. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Heaven will be all satisfying, even if we're not sure of what the details look like exactly. 
uh, or if some of us are wrong, and I'll just go ahead and say, I believe all of us will be wrong on something. So I don't think anyone has it all figured out. Uh, I certainly don't. And I think we'll all be surprised. It will be beyond our imagination. And like I've said again, better than our imagination. John then adds in verse 1 that the sea is no more. And most scholars, at least in the reform camp, believe this refers to the eradication of evil. Uh, As the recipients of John's letter and the ancient uh, writers saw the sea as the source of evil and chaos, I think this is hard, and I don't want to uh, get too bogged down in this, but mainly because a lot of you have moved to Vero Beach because of the sea. And the sea is relaxing, and the sea is refreshing. We're not afraid of the sea in the same way we once were. Technology has allowed us to see what's under the sea and this amazingly wonderful creation that exists there. We use the sea today with greater success for travel and for trade. If John is saying that there is no more literal ocean in the new earth, I can tell you this, whatever's there in its place will be better. And that's okay. We'll be satisfied. We won't want for anything. But I am not persuaded that he is describing that there's no water in the new earth in this fashion of the sea. Furthermore, as we read on, we come to see that John is describing something that is clearly symbolic. This is a symbol of something. The city he calls a bride, and it becomes interchangeable throughout the whole chapter. Is it a bride? Is it a city? Well, it's a bride who's pictured as a city. And the bride isn't necessarily a singular person. Who is the bride? It's us. It's the people of God. And so that is what is being described here. John is seeing in the vision the people of God as the new Jerusalem and as a bride adorned for her husband, verse 2. So this then sets the stage for how we understand the elaboration of that description in verses 9 and following. The new heavens and the new earth are being described here, and we do get some hints about it, but the emphasis is not on the details. I think we get actually, we, we get greater detail from the Old Testament passages like Isaiah that we read earlier, uh, the verses that I read earlier, Isaiah 60 that was read this morning, and other passages of the Old Testament. We actually get greater detail there. Here, the emphasis is on God and his people. And the voice announces in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is such a great summary of what the book of Revelation is all about. This is what the churches in Asia Minor needed to hear. This is what you and I need to hear that there is a hope that awaits us when everything is made new. God will dwell with us and we with him in a garden of Eden-like reality of creation. No more tears, no more death, no more mourning, crying, or pain. John then hears in verse 5 a voice. It is the voice of God. Behold, I am making all things new. Write these things down, for they are trustworthy and true. Again, this is the message of Revelation. Not that we know all the details of the last days, but that we can know he holds all the details in his hands. He is making all things new. This is trustworthy and true. God continues speaking to John. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Again, this is trustworthy and true. It is who God is, the one who spoke all things into existence by the word of his power. Here 
brings the vision of that recreation that he will bring by the same word. He is eternal and unchanging. What was there in the garden, broken by sin, by Adam and Eve, is now restored and redeemed because of the conquering lamb. Everything will be made right. And the lamb who cried on the cross, it is finished, is now echoed by the father who says, it is done. Because the lamb has overcome, all who are his, whose names were written in the book of life before the world was made, will be satisfied. Verse 6, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water, of the, of the water of life without payment. That's a reference to another Isaiah passage where it calls us to come and to buy without money. Satisfaction and a heritage is given to be called sons of the maker of heaven and earth. Verse 7, we're not servants, we're not followers, we're not devotees, we're called sons. And in the ancient world, sons were the ones who received all the rights and privileges of the inheritance. And that means our heritage is a royal inheritance. To drive this point home, God makes it clear to John and to us that those who have not fallen on his mercy will face judgment in verse 8. And in this list, there seem to be two sections. The first section of the first three descriptions seem to identify those who have identified with God but have not persevered to the end. They are cowardly, faithless, and detestable. Greg Beale writes that these are those who have claimed to belong to the covenantal church community, but who, driven by fear of humans rather than fear of God, have compromised in the face of persecution. These are those who have fallen away. In other words, they have not persevered by faith in the Lamb. The second group is described those who have participated in the evils of this world, who have not conquered by the blood of the Lamb either, but have been conquered rather by the dragon and his minions. And we see there that their end is the second death, which is the lake of fire and sulfur or hell. Beginning in verse 9, John begins this deeper dive that I mentioned into what he has just described, giving greater detail. And he is describing the bride of Christ. Remember that. He calls this the bride of Christ. This is the people of God. But it's described as a city. And John is led by one of the angels. We're told it was one of the angels who held one of the seven bowls. He's taken away in the spirit. It's just a reminder. John is having a vision. This is not a physical experience. But in this vision, he's given a perspective of being on a high mountain, a vantage point from which he can see. And he describes there in verse 10, the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. But again, what he sees here described as a city is the bride of Christ. That's what the angel just said in verse 9. This is the people of God. In other words, it is you and I who are here being described symbolically as coming down out of heaven to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. This description is a symbol that conveys characteristics about who we are as the wife of the Lamb and what has been done for us in our salvation. Look at the details. Verse 11, we see the city is holy, having the glory of God. Next, we see the radiance of the city is like a rare jewel, clear like a crystal. The language even infers shining like a star. It has great high walls with 12 gates, each guarded with an angel, with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel described on them, verse 12. And then in verse 14, we see the 12 foundations referring to the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You can see how the symbolism is trying to tell us something. 
It's try, all of this, this language is all ways of describing the people of God in the Old and New Covenants. Uh, the 12 tribes of Israel represented the people of the Old Covenant. The 12 apostles represent the people of the New Covenant, even up to our own day. The plan of redemptive history is revealed in showing that Christ is the foundation through his apostles, which Paul describes in Ephesians 2.19. Listen to how similar Paul's language. This isn't a new idea that we see here in Revelation. Listen to how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the same symbolic language of a structure, a building, a city being built is here in Ephesians. In verse 15, we see the angel measure the entire city, and John provide further description of what he saw. Now, some have taught that this description is to be understood literally. I grew up being taught that, that heaven will be an actual cube, and if we take 12,000 stadia and determine mathematically what that equals, it's about 1,500 miles. So this is a cubed structure, 1,500 miles on each edge. And I remember um, thinking, that's lame. As a, t- as a kid, that's just how I, I responded. I was like, it, I mean, that's, that's like half the United States. You know, it's got to be bigger. Heaven's got to be bigger. This can't be all. I remember Star Trek, The Next Generation, at the same time in my life that I was processing this, this as a teenager, and the Q lived in a cube. And I always thought, that? That's, wait, that's what? No, that can't be right. It misses the whole point. This is not what's being described here, not a physical structure. Consider the numbers mentioned here, 12,000 stadia. We've seen the number 12 before. 12,000 stadia for the city edges. 144 cubits for the walls, we've seen that number before. Both are references to the people of God, which we've seen elsewhere in Revelation. 12 is the number of the 12 tribes, 12 apostles, Old Testament, New Testament. 144 is the square of 12, which we also see in the 144,000, which interestingly enough, how many sides does a cube have? 12. has 12 sides, a cube, not a square, a, 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 a cube. Has 12 sides, 12 edges. 12 times 12,000 is what? 144,000. There it is again. So this is clearly describing in a symbolic form the people of God again. He tells us it's the bride of Christ, but even the symbolism itself points to the bride of Christ. Now, for those of you who are particularly good at math, you've probably already figured out that a wall of 144 cubits pales in comparison to a city described as being 1,500 miles cubed. It would be like putting toothpicks around the church building. It's strange. It doesn't measure up. It's inconsistent. Look in verse 17. John points out in that verse that this is an angel's measurement. Greg Beale explains, in order to alleviate the confusion over the literal disproportion, John then adds that this vision of human measurement is to be understood more deeply according to its symbolic or heavenly or angelic meaning. 
This reminds the readers that if their comprehension of his vision is limited only to a surface level, the physically literal meaning, they will misunderstand it. Now, the cube does point to one other thing, and that is the Holy of Holies. In the tabernacle and later the temple, that was the one uh, structure or entity within the, holy, uh, within the, the, the tabernacle and the temple that was cubed in shape. And so what does that tell us? Well, it tells us what John's already describing. God will be with his people and we will be with his God. The Holy of Holies was the, was, was the most access you could have under the Old Covenant to God. And the high priest could only go in there once a year. That was it. And what God is saying now is that we will be with him. The cube structure is pointing to that. The precious stones point to this as well. These are the same stones used in the priestly breastplate that was worn by the priests in the ministry of the tabernacle and the temple. Paul Gardner points out, we've seen this practice of measuring before in chapter 11. Measuring is an image of just how well God knows his people and protects them. None can fall away or feel unsafe, for God is fully aware. This city is perfectly measured by God and is his complete building. None has missed the boat. All the elect are present, and the bride is indeed perfect. Personally, I am convinced that heaven will not be limited to a cube-shaped city, even though a 1,500-mile-sized complex would be huge. I just don't think that that's what is being described here. If it turns out I'm wrong on this, it's okay, because I won't be unhappy. I will be perfectly satisfied. God can use a 1,500-mile cube. He can use a 15-mile cube. God can use anything to do whatever his purpose is. So again, the emphasis is not on how, uh, you know, where you land on all this. I'm arguing for the symbolic understanding because I think it's so overwhelming how all the descriptions and numbers and symbols are being used here to describe the people of God. But it's okay if you land somewhere else. We'll be in heaven together and we'll be happy in heaven together. In the final verses of chapter 1, We begin to see even more detail, but keep in mind the symbolism doesn't end. John is still describing the city he saw coming down, which he tells us is the bride of Christ. And the the description here begins to be described in the negative. There is no temple. The city has no need of sun or moon. The city gates will never be shut. There will be no night, and there will be nothing unclean in it. All negative statements. The first statement, there's no physical temple. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God is with his people forever, and we are with him. No more separation, nothing to separate us. Sin is removed. There's no longer any place for a need, uh, or for us to need a place to meet him. No, there's no temple. There's no, we don't need to go somewhere to meet God, for we are with him forever. There's no need for what the temple accomplished in, the, in, in, in pointing to the atonement, that, that there was a dealing of sin there in, in the sacrificial system. All of that's gone. It's unnecessary. Sin has been eradicated. We will enjoy perfect, uninterrupted communion with our God. The city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Notice in both of these passages how the Father and the Son are being described together, first as the temple, now as the source of light. Now notice, it doesn't say that there's no sun or moon. It says there is no need of sun or moon and that there will be no night. This this may be literal, but I, I think that, again, there's symbolic understanding here that we will never again walk in darkness. Sin will be no more. The effects of sin will be no more. 
Uh, if there is a sun and moon, it just is simply stating that the glory of God will outshine them. Verse 24, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This does not mean that we are going to add anything to heaven, but rather as the sons and daughters of God redeemed by the Lamb, we are the treasure. We're the treasure. We're the trophies of grace. This is the fulfillment of the same wording, the prophecy that we read in Isaiah 60. Hopefully you recognize that when I read, uh, when Zach read Isaiah 60 and then I read uh, Revelation 21. Same wording that John is drawing from here. Paul writes of this in Ephesians 2. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is, we are the trophies of his grace. And lastly, nothing unclean will ever enter it as only those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb whose names are written in His book of life will be present there. We will be fully safe, protected. Nothing can harm us. Nothing can change that. Now, like I said, the image doesn't end here. It does go on into chapter 22. We're going to pick up with that next week. But I want us to see the hope of heaven. That, you know, we want answers. We want details. If we're all honest, that's what we want. We want to know exactly what it's going to be like. And we get very little. We don't get as much as we want. We want more. But the more that we actually need is not the details of what heaven's going to be like, because whatever the details are, we're going to be happy. What we need more of is the hope itself. To know that the conquering lamb who was slain for you and me has accomplished for us what we could not do for ourselves in redeeming us and atoning for our sins. Today we get to come to his table to commune with him in fellowship with one another, we come to celebrate and to remember what he has accomplished on our behalf. We come here for our, our, our faith to be strengthened, that we might be equipped to follow and trust the faithful shepherd who leads us and feeds us and who will carry us safely home. The inheritance that we have is certain because Jesus has made it so. He says to us today, this is a trustworthy saying. We can believe it. Let me close with words from Michael Card. Here the great hope, the center of the heart of God, becomes a reality. Here at last he will walk with us and be our God, and we shall be his people. Here he will finally reach out his hand, touch our faces, wipe our tears. For as the loud voice proclaims, at last the dwelling of God is with men and women, and he will live with them. It has not always been our hope, but it has always been his. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your plan of redemption. Thank you for the hope that you have given us. We couldn't come up with this. We wouldn't dream it up. It is far beyond our imagination what you have accomplished by your grace in our lives for our good and for your glory. We thank you for it. Would you give us an increasing measure of hope as we walk in this life? Would you increase our anticipation of heaven? Would you strengthen our faith that we might walk in obedience to you in this life, that we might not waste the breaths that we've been given, the heartbeats that we have been uh, uh, accorded, that we would steward those things well for your glory? Lord, may we not waste our lives. We thank you that this is our future that we can be certain of it. I pray that you would deepen that in our hearts, that we would know it to be true and trust you completely. I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.